everybody, welcome back to Experience by Design Podcast, where we like to explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David, handling introduction duties for this week. How was everything? Everything good? Hanging in there? Surviving the wacky weather that seems to be all over the place? 65 degrees in Antarctica last week. I saw one article say, but it's the summer in the Southern Hemisphere. As if that was going to make 65 in Antarctica better? I don't know. To top it off, I was just in Atlanta where it snowed. People were outside taking pictures of it, walking around wondering what is this white stuff falling from the sky. This was a day after they had tornado warnings there, which caused massive delays, which caused me to arrive in Atlanta at 3 a.m. Thanks, Atlanta. Hardly a hint of snow up here in Boston, where it has been March probably for the last few months. We are definitely living in interesting times in general, if not interesting weather times in specific. With all that is going on in the world, it is understandable that people may want to ignore a lot of it since it can seem pretty overwhelming. A lot of people have turned to ignoring the news, perhaps tuning it off in hopes that it all goes away. I I do understand that strategy. As I've tried it many times myself in different kinds of situations, I've ignored my kids in the hopes that they'll go away, especially when asking me for money to buy something that they probably don't need but are trying to convince me they really can't live without. I've tried to ignore my problems in the hopes that they too will go away, an approach that my therapist told me I shouldn't use regularly and in the end won't work. I've tried to ignore paying my bills, and that didn't work either. They were still there, and the bill collector still wanted them. I've even ignored the phone when my mother is called. That honestly has led to some mixed success. Uh, I wouldn't say that I would highly recommend it, but in certain times, it's, you got to do what you got to do to get by. But what happens when you ignore your customers? And this is the topic of today's podcast with our guest, Micah Solomon. Micah wants to tell you that the title of his new book is Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, the simple playbook for delivering the ultimate customer service experience. And he'll tell you that many times during the podcast to make sure that you remember both the name of his book and that if you ignore your customers, they will in fact go away. In a time where customers are spoken of in aggregates, Micah wants you to, quote, never stop believing in the importance of the individual customer and the importance of every individual interaction, no matter how many customers your organization has grown to serve. And I will add, as a person who studies interaction for a living and has done it for a while now, it is in those individual interactions that the customer experience is born. It's not just around the perception of those interactions, but the interactions themselves. And that's why, following Micah's advice, we really do need to pay attention to those individual interactions. And while this may seem rather obvious, companies can nevertheless lose sight of it pretty easily. Thus, Micah's playbook on how to make sure your company is focusing on those habits and actions that make those moments that matter for customers and employees alike. And that's a really important part that we're not just sitting here going to talk about the customers as the focus of our efforts, but the employees as an essential component, if not the essential component in that equation. In Micah's visit to the Experience by Design studio, we will explore, among other things, including the title of his book, which is Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, Micah's trajectory into the world of customer experience. We'll also talk about the essential ingredients and elements of customer experience, 
how you have to start with your employees, and the need to build a culture, culture, pardon me, how you need to build a culture in your organization where, quote, unquote, the experience is everything. We had a lot of fun talking with Micah. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as we did. At what point in your career was CX seen as rebellion and the customer experience now become kind of this thing that is, is, I wouldn't say generally accepted, but more appreciated? I don't know that it was ever a rebellion, but I started out as a musician. I, my, my plan in college was to become a rock star. When I graduated, that was my, that was my plan I, too. This is good. <laughs> my, when I graduated, I realized I couldn't really apply for a rock star as a, for a rock star position, but I did know a bit about recording. So I opened a recording studio, and it morphed into a manufacturing business. And the manufacturing business was always successful, but it wasn't because our widgets were any shinier or. It was because of our customer service and how much time we spent on the relationship with each customer. So I realized that even though other companies can have other secrets, that was our secret. So when I sold my company to our biggest competitor, I thought, hmm, I better reinvent myself. And I realized that this was something that I had, I guess, a core competency in it. The, the other thing, maybe this is more rebellious, I'm not sure. The other way I got into this was I've always been extremely particular. I actually saw a letter from my that was sent to my parents by my camp counselor, which is actually good customer service. The parents are really the customers, right? So they yeah. send this note at the end of, uh, but you can really be- read between, I don't know if it was even between the lines, you could read in the lines what they really thought because it was like, what? It was like, uh, it's been a rigorous pleasure being Micah's counselor this summer. And we've we've enjoyed the comments on the whistle at the waterfront being out of tune and the sloppy Joe's not really pairing with the orange juice. And we we now return him to your good care or something like that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I've just always been particular, and I guess I figured a way to make that useful to other people as well. Uh, We I told my wife that my next book I was going to call it "Paid to Complain," and she immediately came up with the sub title, which she insisted would be, and my wife listens for free. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I once got asked in a class on death and dying to participate 20, 20% less that I was, I was too part. I was too engaged. Well, you're, in you're freakishly competent. I mean, I, what was it? I make a throwaway comment at the conference. Is that what it was? And you turned it into an ethnographic, sociologic, amazing article. Isn't that approximately what happened? Yeah, basically it was a interaction between the Zappos people and I had to use conversation analysis and some membership categorization devices, which are sociological kind of things. And I started breaking it down into the under the engine, what was going on. And because uh, I thought it was just like when I saw that interaction that you had, 
presented as good customer experience. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing for all these other reasons too. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that real quick. So it wasn't a throwaway comment. I mean, it might have been at the conference, but in the book, you can find it. it, And What's the name of that book? Well, Micah, why don't you tell us? It is Ignore Your Customers and... They'll go away. <laughs> was, exactly. that, was a, that was a rebellious title, uh, which I managed to get through my publisher. The simple playbook for delivering the ultimate customer service experience. And it has been published officially on January 14th. Okay. And it's available both at Amazon and outside of that uh, dominant provider. It's also at your local bookstore, I hope. And please support them. If you have one, and so this is a second. There's a couple things from Zappos in the book, and this is one of them. It's talking about how Zappos tries to create everyday wow, so a wow customer right. experience on every phone call, and this is different from some of the other wow examples that I have in the book, which are very elaborate and wonderful, like from the Ritz Carlton Hotel Company. But these right. are moments of everyday wow on the phone calls. And I also try to stress this because Zappos really hypes their extraordinary way over the top things like the 10 hour phone call. But most customers don't want a 10 hour phone call. So that's just, they're just making a point, but I wanted to show what really makes wow happen on a day to day basis. And the call in question was from an older woman. I have it. Want to read it? Yeah. Would you read from that book? Yes. And what's the name of that book again? It, the, you know, I'm glad you asked me. It the book <laughs> is called "Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away: The Simple Playbook for Delivering the Ultimate Ex- Customer Service Experience." And I was lucky enough, or fortunate enough, you're gracious enough to give me an advanced copy of the book, so I have been reading it. And, and the interaction was brief. And I'm glad, I really am glad you talked about the major wow experience versus the everyday wow. Uh-huh. Because I, I think that's a really important point to make. The, 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 the statement from Madison, who was a member of the customer loyalty team at Zappos, was honestly, narrows are the worst. It's almost like the whole industry has conspired against people with narrow feet. My aunt has narrow feet like you, and I swear it seems like every other conversation I have with her is about her miseries related to them. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. Mm. And that's why I wrote a blog post at my blog site, ethno-analytics.com. That is E-T-H-N-O-analytics.com? That's exactly what it is. And I wrote a blog called Living in the Narrows, Relationship Building at Zappos. And and. There is so much going on in there. I think it's a great example of you can have socially or social psychologically significant moments of interaction that connect at multiple levels in an instant. That it doesn't have to, you know, as a designed interaction, it does so many things without having to go over the top in its production. I think it's a crucial point that was so artfully made also in your presentation because I heard you do guest speaking as well. Is that right? (laughs) You're awesome. I am a keynote speaker for... uh events. They're often industry specific and for companies that need a keynote speaker for their event. That is one of the major things I do. Thank you for bringing that up, by the way. And I saw you speak at a conference at a a company meeting and that was the example you gave and it blew me away. And that's where it inspired me. Like like a good musician will inspire inspire other works of art. It inspired me to write this blog post. So let's give them a little more background. With With this older woman called in she was really frustrated because she had to go to a relative's, probably a grandchild, but I'm not sure, a relative's 
wedding and she wanted something a little kind of dressier than she usually wore, but she had narrow feet. She tried her best from the Zappos website to order that, but what she got didn't really work for her. And then Madison bonded with her. Is that the wording you would use? And you can take it from there. Yeah, she. I would say that she aligned with this issue of this life challenge that the the customer has, right? By amplifying it, because it's not just you know not just difficult. They're the worst. I'm not only agreeing with you. I'm doing what we call in the business an upgrade assessment. So I'm upgrading your positive, your negative assessment, and agreeing with you by doing it. And so conversationally, that builds intense alignment and connection between the interactants. So that right there as a conversational move is really powerful without her necessarily even realizing it. And, the, and I think one of the points I, that you were making that I was trying to make in the blog you inspired was that by being conscious of those moments, that every moment is a potential moment that matters and that we have great agency to design those moments, even in ways that seem superficially small. Absolutely. And this is something companies get wrong and they get right. I mean, really good employees, really good employees who have enough time to do it, because that's another point I make in that chapter is that to give the kind of service Madison gave requires what I call breathing space. And Zappos allows enough breathing space in their contact center, the way they schedule things that Madison can have a phone call go eight minutes or even they claim 10 hours, but I think they would go broke if, well, they have Bezos's money, so they'll never grow broke. But they, I don't think it would be great for business if every call went 10 hours, but they can go right. 12 minutes or one minute, whatever is called for. So I, I think some support from leadership for this is good. I think being aware that not every customer at every moment really wants to be wowed. A lot of them just are really rushed. And and so sometimes you have to just t- take your personality out of the equation to be more uh, transactional. But, you know, these are all subtle points. One thing that interests me about this, too, is that thinking with this example of Madison, what are some other kind of examples you've seen that you, and then you talk about in the book, too, but uh, I'd love to hear it. the idea of working with a millennial might feel slightly different because the age bracket in terms of what their expectations might be out of a customer experience. And is that something that you found that like, is, is there kind of a difference in, I don't, you know, I'm not really a huge fan of putting people in generational brackets too deeply, but have you found kind of case studies like this where you do work with millennials in slightly different ways? And if so, what, what are some of those other ways that you would shift this kind of this lens of seeing how customer service might work? Well, I agree with you that putting people in brackets like that is tricky. I'm more okay with that almost on the customer side than I am on the employee side, which I think is a huge trap. So, but but I talk about both, about how to work with uh, millennial customers and millennial employees. On the customer side, I don't think... I think what I would be more aware with with millennials is that sometimes they will just want just the facts and just mm. just but don't expect that because of their age because sometimes they what they're most interested in is the story behind the brand and that can take several minutes to get across. Millennials as a rule are more interested in the origins of a product in uh, what I call peer to a peer to peer style of customer service. So not like they've walked into Buckingham Palace and you're calling them sir and ma'am and that's they'll find that off putting. 
And sometimes they just they do just they just don't want to be slowed down, and they may want to use your self service tools. But it really depends. Like it does for everybody else. It can depend on the time of day. Hotels have found that if you order room service breakfast, you want it really quickly. They don't really know why, but that just seems to be a fact. And then uh, dinner, you're a little bit more chill about it. So all these factors matter. And I, I like about that is, and you make this point in your book which is called Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, that context matters and that you have to pay attention to the context in which these things are happening and provide for opportunities for employees to innovate how they're doing their work. And, and I, while this book is written with customers in the title, I did see a lot of direct lines between employee experience and how mm. management and managerial philosophy relates to creating a culture in which employees are freed up to and trusted to create those moments that matter, those wild moments, and to create that positive experience. Exactly. Uh, the, the chapter where I go deeply into the very elaborate wow customer experiences that companies like the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company strive to create, I talk about how that can happen and also, there's a kind of an aside from Lisa Holiday, who is in effect the the brand manager for Ritz Carlton and a, a few other lovely luxury hotel brands. And her quote is that we don't publicize these, but we have many internal wow experiences where, and it's really a lot of what keeps employees both here but also inspired. It's that they were having their cancer treatment and their fellow employees stocked their refrigerator every day or two and things like that. So absolutely. And the, the customer culture matrix that I put in the book is all about that. It's about that your, I think your customer culture depends on how you treat your customers, how you treat the people who are, who are serving the customers and how well you do that on a stressful day as opposed to a low stress day. So one of the things that makes Disney rather extraordinary is that the park, and I know you'll get 80 calls saying they've found an unfortunate exception to this, but if the park's at 80% capacity, they still provide pretty good customer service. Right. And most companies just can't do that. So, and Disney actually, the parks kind of fall apart when it's a rainy day and they are low capacity. Sometimes sometimes that's not the day to get the best service, but under a little stress, they seem to thrive. Most companies are the opposite. They thrive when they're overstaffed, when uh, things are easy, when there's no hurricane in the forecast. So strive to get those four boxes, how you treat customers, how you treat the people who serve the customers. Then add two more boxes, which is for whether it's a stressful time or whether it's a really easy time and strive to do your best in all of those boxes. You mentioned Disney and I wanted to relate a Disney experience that I had. Oh no. Uh, A good one. (laughs) This is a really good one. This is an, I mean this, and it's interesting to compare universal studios to Disney. My, my middle daughter is developmentally disabled. So going to Disney and going to universal we are able to get a kind of pass that allows us to bypass a line on rides or move you know, more quickly through the line on rides in order to get on the rides because there's no right. chance that right. the kid's going to be able to stand in line. At Disney, when we were going to go do this, 
we were brought, we, we went to a place that was inside, air-conditioned, where there was no line, and we were able to talk to a person and get this relatively easily. At Universal, to get the pass to avoid standing in line, we had to do what? Go stand in a line ah. that was called guest services. So people were there with their luggage. People were there with other kinds of questions and complaints that weren't just about this. And I don't know if there's any That's way- That's insane. I agreed. <laughs> and mm. it was very difficult to start the journey of accommodation with an unaccommodating kind of experience. Whereas Disney, whether intentional or, or not, I'm sure it's intentional, everything at Disney's intentional. It was, uh, to do this one task was not guest services. It was, you go to this person and that's that person's job to do. So that's fantastic. So can I say a couple of things about this? Please, absolutely. It's possible that the universal, you know, and let's, pray and let's hope that they've improved that how long ago was this that was you're never going back so it doesn't matter (laughs) it was actually it was actually not even a year ago that that happened at universal i think the reason it's better at disney was two reasons i think that they didn't think it out at universal i'm just gonna guess but the other thing is you know they need to do this to comply, they need to do either a show of doing this or really do it for uh, ADA compliance. So many companies will be like, darn it, we have to do something. And they just do the minimum. And that's a ridiculous minimum that a disabled person has to wait in line to avoid a line. It's just ridiculous. I mean, if your disability were MS, by the way, and a parks in Florida or California, most people with MS, their dis- disability is exacerbated by standing in the sun. So that's not a good approach. But what it sounds like from Disney is that they leaned into this. They're like, yeah, this started with the government, but all our customers have potential. So let's use this as an opportunity. And it's a really great principle. There's a line from the great director, Francis Ford Cop- Coppola. I heard that's like third hand. So as I heard, he said, "Right, one of his secrets is that if an actor has a weakness, a quirk, instead of trying to paper over it, he likes them to to lean. And you know, he doesn't say lean into it, but he likes them right. to embrace that. So, you know, he would never work with uh, Frank Pesci and try to make his uh, funny nose not there. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. So this is a quirk that pro- no doubt they were not expecting to have to work into their operation, but when they realized they were going to have to do it, they really did it. And I want I want to add one more piece of the story about okay. why they. Oh, sorry, it. yeah. <laughs> and no, this is great. This is great. You're gonna love this. I don't know. I just mansplaining to you, if that's okay. No, I, I love it. Or guest um, guest explaining, I guess. Guest explaining, <laughs> able body explaining. So there's there was a thing that happened in 2013 where people were hiring or disabled children, and parents were leasing out their disabled children to able bodied families so that they could go and avoid lines in Disney. Whoa! No. Oh, I'm dead serious. Yeah, you, you can go to, I'm looking at slate.com right now. Disney no longer lets disabled kids cut the line for rides because some people have no soul. Last May's investigation began with ads found on Craigslist which, in which- Okay, I can't, I can't even stand to hear this, but that's horrifying. Okay, so what happened then? Well, this is where I think Disney had an opportunity to revisit its policy. So one of the things you have to do is present your child as your child. And therefore, you didn't hire this child from somebody else and that your child has a disability. So they are starting out with this idea of- But who would do that? Who wants to go to the parks with a random kid? 
Well, uh, well <laughs> there are some people who'd like to do that. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> but I think one of the things that Disney did well here is that that's invisible to the process. Oh, okay. So how does you it know? happen? Well, when we did it, and going to Disney was, was a bit ago, it was, just, you know, you go there, we read about it online ahead of time. It was ample information on parents' sites. There was discussions of it. You go, this is my child. You don't have to present a letter or anything. I didn't need her chromosome test to show that. See that extra chromosome right there? That shouldn't be there. It was, oh, okay, we, un- you know, we understand. Here we go. Or whatever they said, and we got the pass, and off we went. And so I, I think one of the points here is that you can have regulatory environments in which rules have to be enforced without it feeling like it's patrolling or policing. And it never felt like that. Okay. And so they were accomplishing their goal while not interfering with our experience, I guess would be my takeaway of that. Oh, that's great. So there's one story that I'd love for you to check out, see what you think of it. In my book, which is, is, is ignoring your customers, ignore your customer. I know ignore your customers and they'll go away. And there's a remarkable example of something along these lines. It's a little different, but, but wow. So it was, and this is in a different environment. I mean, Disney is a little bit there on that line between mass and in, in individual. They, so they do have to work on a larger scale, but this was uh, someone I know who has a son with very serious um, food allergies. Now, I should say ha- had very serious food allergies. He was moving beyond them to some extent. So I, I haven't followed up with them. But at the time, they were serious. They were life-threatening. Right. So my this guy I know, his wife, thought, well, we're going to Hong Kong what brand do we trust? And she said, well, we trust the Ritz-Carlton. So they wrote a letter to Ritz-Carlton telling that they were coming there, they were going to stay with the hotel, and here's the situation with their son. And she was blown away. She got a letter back from the chef there saying, here's what we can do, and how do these options sound to her? And she was just amazed. And when they got there, the culinary staff took it one step farther they not only improved the meals in the hotel every day they sent the family off with a thermos of food that oh, the wow. kid could have as they wandered around hong kong so th- so the grown-ups could be super adventurous with the food and the kid could have um, some pretty tasty stuff and th- it was just it was just remarkable now whether you can do that in a mass environment or not it, i just thought it showed the right kind of thinking that's amazing. And so when you are going into writing your book and we're talking about, you know, varying kinds of abilities and disabilities and needs, the, the, the decision to include the diversity and inclusion notes, I really appreciated because I don't know that you talk about mansplaining, you know, it's the idea. Yeah, I'm sorry of, I said that. I, I'm not. I'm, no, but I, th- I, think, I think one of the things that I, I was just, for instance, in a learning experience development per- workshop the last three days. And one of the things that we and were Let me tell you what about, you learned. <laughs> well, one of the things we talked about, the, the experiences, one of the things we talked about was you should express vulnerability of knowledge to your students to empower them to embrace their own learning by providing their own experiences, right? So you should tell your students from time to time, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, that sounds like reasonable advice. However, one of the people in our group who's a woman who teaches science, she's like, well, if I do that, people already don't think I know what I'm talking about because I'm a woman in science. So if I tell them I don't know what, I don't know answers to questions, or if I play down my own knowledge, 
is that going to decrease the trust or the, the, the belief they have in my competence and affect my evaluations? And I thought that was a really interesting point to think about how the, the, the recommendations for these customer experience opportunities may not be experienced the same way based upon who's performing them, I guess, is the point I was making. Well, yeah, and that is... That is that is an issue. Uh, I don't talk about that in particular, but the two experts who I brought in to talk about inclusion and diversity, they talk about in hiring. Well, I talk about don't go with your gut on hiring because if you do that, you're just going to end up hiring people who are like you or like some right. idealized version of a younger ver- of a younger version of what you think you used to be like. So they expand that. They talk about the importance of blind interviews, which I'm sure you guys know more about than I do. And I mean, the famous example, I guess uh, Malcolm Gladwell made it famous, but the example of uh, the orchestra in, I think it was Austria, and they always never, always managed to never hire female horn players. Like there was this right. belief that women didn't have the breath to get a note out on a trombone or some crap like that. And they found that when they did blind interviews and made them so blind, they padded the floors so high heels wouldn't sound different, suddenly a lot of women were qualifying. So that's the most famous example. I know that, but there's a lot of that going on. And there's the, where companies realize that they're just wasting. Uh, they're, they're not picking from the pool of the best people. They're picking from the pool of the best people who look the way they think they should look, who don't have a visible disability, who can uh, stand on their feet all day, which is a requirement in many of these companies. And it has, as far as I'm concerned, very little to do with whether you're providing great customer service. I mean, it's an odd thing. They make the frontline staff stand up, which for anyone over age, I don't know, 36 maybe starts to become undoable. I mean, I say everyone, but most people. And um, and yet they're really extremely skilled customer service people like the concierges. They often get to sit. So what's that about? So you're, you hire someone who looks like you who's able-bodied like you, who's the age that you expect. And um, one of the two experts, Michael Heider in the book, works with big corporates and their boards. And in that case, the boards won't hire you, won't put you on the board unless you're old enough. There's some sharp person in their 20s, their 30s, even maybe their 40s, and they're not going to go on the board. So these expectations obviously end up harming people, you know, applicants, but they also end up harming your company as well. Totally. And that's a a really great point. I mean, what, I mean, aside from blind interviews, because I mean, that's a really cool idea, but something that you actually only also generally hear in Malcolm Gladwell stories. (laughs) What what are some? Well, it's it's the smaller you are and the less you have a, you know, really highly trained HR company, the less possible it is because, mm. you know, we just go and check their Facebook pages and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, what were we going to say? Sorry. No, actually, actually, there's two questions I was thinking of. One is that, so what are some of the other techniques that you have seen through your time in consulting and that you might find in the book too, that uh, are successful for helping actually hire in a more intelligent way for diversity, for inclusion in the customer experience lens? That's the first question. What techniques have you seen? The second one is actually what you just said there of how is social media changing both the hiring process and just how people approach customer experience in general. So there are two big questions. That's three questions. That's three questions, right? I can't count. I'm going to have to remember. Your, you know, yeah. your third you question, can, what did Robin Williams say? Your third question cannot be wishing for more wishes. That's, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So, all right. So there's a few questions. So 
I say don't put much credence in interviews. That's what I say because you'll end up getting the people who interview well. Uh, but I, I say I also say if you do put credence in interviews, you should do it in a particular way with more open-ended questions. And at that point, I think that Gary can expound on that a little bit. Do you want to? Well, I think that this is how you also make money from asking questions. And I, I think we really <laughs> talked about in the book where you ask questions that are performance-based. Like, tell me about a time when you – Right. Yeah, or, you know, talk about when you experience something related to something we're you know having here in the company, uh, versus just um, looking at experience that you've had in the industry. Because if you just look at experience in the industry, those those biases or those glass ceilings are going to be reinforced. Oh, the, okay, good the, point. And the same thing for the recommendations. And one of the things that I absolutely devalue completely our letters of recommendation because who's going to write a bad letter of recommendation right did you listen to uh dr death i did not okay so you gotta listen to that podcast and it's a it's a neurosurgeon who is terrible and all his peers know he's terrible and he's literally killing people and mostly just maiming people but still and how it happens, and I'm going to say allegedly because I don't want to be sued by this dude, but it seems pretty clear, was that his hospitals where he worked, and they do name names, kept passing him on with positive recommendations just to get him out of there and to not get sued. There you go. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it becomes a very tricky business in terms of you know attracting and hiring the best talent, not only to perform the job, but to evolve the job to where it needs to be and also fit the culture of the company. Yeah, and this fitting the culture is so dangerous, right? Right? Because you, so. you take a company and you take a company and their culture is going out for happy hours. Now, if you're a recovering alcoholic or you're Mormon or you're whatever – you can't do that, but why do you want to lose all that talent? You really do need to meet people where they are to provide them with the spaces to succeed. I think that's, you know, I mean, I don't have my own business where I hire people. I have a business of one, but, you know, in terms of... Yeah, but gosh, what a pain you have for a boss, eh? <laughs> yeah, he's a real jerk, but, you know, the guy who's underneath him is fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, with all the voices that is in kind of head. how it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's all the voices in my head. You're underappreciated, I'm sure. I think so. I just I keep telling my wife. So I think that we have. Yeah, how's that working? That's a different podcast, Micah. That's a different podcast. You know, there's this great song. Adam, oh man, I'm forgetting his name. He's a great songwriter and he has this brilliant song. It's called Mozart's Money. And he talks about a guy who wrote a song for one of the huge country. And it's a tr- actually, it's based on a true story. He says that he knows this guy who wrote this song and now he's set for life. Mozart died without any money. And that's what I tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this sounds actually like a book that was never written. That was, I believe called paid to complain. Right. <laughs> oh. Well, his wow. song, if you want to check it out, it's called Mozart's money and it's hilarious. I, like I think that. that tie-in wins the wins the day there, Adam, for sure. <laughs> but you go, but the hiring stuff has just become tricky, as you were talking about, Mike. I, I did appreciate the recommendations that you have about attracting talent in the book that's called. Oh, you're so nice. Ignore your customers, and they'll right. go away. Now, that's you want oh, now? Did you want me to talk about the social media stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So there are companies out there who go onto Facebook and look for like. Uh, hostesses from the in the want to be a model Facebook page. And this is absolutely true. Absolutely true. So number one, that's illegal in a lot of places. It's definitely illegal in the District of 
Colombia and probably other places as well. But I don't think it serves anyone well. There's a there's it's even a theme on one of the shows in Girls about how Marnie is is she the one she's the Williams kid. So she's the yeah. obviously most traditionally beautiful person on the show and she gets what they call pretty people jobs. And so there's a discussion of that. And this is a real thing, but I just wrote, I wrote a um, post about this recently. I don't think that's serving you well. I don't, I don't think that's serving you well, but that it has been a, a side effect of, of social media. Though I guess you get not hired a lot earlier, which maybe saves the uh, not quite as pretty people a little time, I guess. But, you know, it's really bad. You can, you know, Facebook was running those ads for, um, remember they were, they were, they had, this is a little bit of a different thing, but it's the same horrible principle. They had landlords running ads where they could exclude um, anyone who was in any right. group on Facebook on disabilities and mm. so forth. Yeah. Right. So same principle. I don't think that's the way to use social media. The, the social media and customer service does have some value. The scary thing about it is that people can say bad things about you, justified or not. The nice thing is if they're unhappy, you can get right back to them. And you should get right back to them. Mm. I worked with a great theme park. It wasn't uh, either of the two that's been mentioned, but a fantastic theme park. And I asked to see their written standards. And this is a few years ago. And one, all of them made sense to me how they treat people. It was, it was great. But this one jumped out at me. And as we strive to respond to any internet query from a customer within 48 hours. So I try to keep a really neutral face. And I said, oh, interesting. 48 hours. When was this written? And they said, oh, not too long ago, 2011, maybe. Hmm. So I was like, oh, well, maybe in 2011, that was fine. But I think in whatever year it was actually, it was like 2016, 48 hours in internet is in internet time. That's like 36 years. If they haven't heard from you by that 47th hour, they assume you are never going to get back to them and they are going to escalate it. However they feel like escalating it. But the nice thing is for those of us who are really customer centered and willing to be scouring social media, we have this chance to interact directly with the customer or even with people who aren't your, really your customers. One of my favorite examples in the book is from a quickly growing technology company called Nextiva, N-E-X-T-I-V-A. And the thing is that the example is that someone from Europe tweeted at them, you know, we really want your service. Can you help us? And instead of just saying, uh, that'll be a no, they posted this adorable video of why they're sorry they don't offer voice over IP in Europe yet. And thanks for uh, encouraging us in that direction. And so not only did they blow away this customer who had tweeted, but everyone who watched that interaction was like, well, you know what? I live in Idaho. I can use Nextiva. So I thought that was just brilliant. It sounds at some level when we're talking about this, the examples are all really cool. How do you or do you come across people who go, well, that, all that sounds really exhausting. But now I, I just can't respond with an email. I got to create a video on YouTube or, you know, I have to think about you know, narrow feet differently or whatever it is, (laughs) right? I mean, for the worker, for the person doing the job, you know, do you get a sense of, well, if you ever talk at that level of folks doing the work, you know, why this, why they should want to do this, you know, why it's worth their time to do it and why it's not another thing for them to do in an already stressed environment? Well, that's why I talk about breathing space, that if you're understaffed, and everyone's pressured to end their calls in five minutes, then they're not going to be able to provide this kind of service. 
So it really does come from the top down valuing. I mean, the success comes from the bottom up, but the valuing that success as I'm defining it is is up to the leadership. One of the examples from uh, one of the founders of the Ritz-Carlton, this isn't in the book, but it's in the previous book of mine, is that if someone has been told as a janitor, or they call them an engineer, has uh, been told that he's supposed to be, uh, he or she or they are supposed to be uh, changing light bulbs, but a, a guest is trying to come in the door what he wants is for that person to know immediately that his overriding goal is to provide, serve even the unexpressed needs and wishes of the guests. So he's supposed to get down that ladder, stop changing the light bulb, open that door for the, for the guest without them even needing to fiddle with the knob to come in. So that's anticipatory customer service. And it depends on knowing that your real job is to serve customers, even if it doesn't match the checklist you were given that day. But if that's what someone says in some mission statement, you know, that was drawn up at a retreat, but it's not shown day to day that this is what's actually valued by the customer, by the company, then yeah, it's not going to work. Did you, in looking in the book and talk about metrics around that, rewarding what matters to the customer versus what's important to the organization. So to your point about if you're in a call center and you tell people you can only keep calls to two minutes, but we really value customer experience. (laughs) Tell me how that that two minutes values customer experience. (laughs) I was just reading a novel. I was just reading a novel and it was hilarious. It's called uh, Hunts, Foxes in, it's it's hard. The title's hard, Hunts, Foxes in Dreams, but I recommend anyone, anything by this writer, Tom Drury, like Drury Lane, D-R-U-R-Y. And one of his protagonists walks into, pulls up to a gas station and the person at the pump, I think his name is Jerry. And he has this big button that says, I'm Jerry. I am empowered to serve you. And <laughs> then she says, well, I need a fill up. And he says, well, you're going to have to guess how much you, you owe me and prepay me. And she's prepay me. And she says, aren't you empowered to serve me? And he said, well, yeah. But I also have to balance all the other bad customers who have ripped us off in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and and hey, there's transparency, right? I mean, you there was. Jerry was candid. Yes, but as you can't you can't fault him for that. You check that box. So we got transparency. <laughs> I don't know if the experience is so good. Another thing I talk about is people want an authentic customer experience. This means using your own words and so forth. Like Madison does in that phone call, but authenticity. Only goes so far. No one wants to deal with an employee who is authentically living out their hangover, right? They want them to suck it up and smile for this one phone call, right? Yeah. And that, I mean, that, because I think actually these, there's, there's these two pieces, the two A words you've mentioned so far of anticipatory customer service and authentic customer experience. And uh-huh. those are very interesting because, on one level, you know, to be authentically anticipatory. Sounds like a different thing than than sort of being ready to you know serve right away. It's sort of like having a precognitive idea of what your customers may need, almost. Mm. You know, and coming from the design field, this is like you see a lot of the idea of how do you like Netflix. You might think about an example of how do you anticipate what a person would want to watch next. You know, you want you want right. to say, oh, this new episode will start in thirty seconds if you don't do anything. So I mean, that's anticipatory right there. Where, yeah, but don't you think that's a they must be getting paid a little bit per thing they actually push to your eyeballs. Yes. Because well, if they yeah, weren't, yeah. really serving a customer is probably not necessarily encouraging binge watching. You know what I mean? 
The thing that's better, more anticipatory about Netflix and that what I really do love um, is their algorithm that lets me know what I might like to watch next. Mm. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you, you think about how that, like, if you put that in conversation with Amazon, right? And Amazon says customers who bought X product probably also bought, or like, also did buy Y product. And then you, then, you know, yeah. you as the customer, you're like, huh, I do need that extra pair of shoelaces, you know, to go with my, my narrow shoes. And exactly. So there was a New Yorker cartoon, and I love this. I can't get anyone else to laugh at it as much as I do, but I'm hoping you guys will. <laughs> you walk into the pharmacy, and there's a sign that says, some other drugs you may enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. I like that. Thank you. I thought that was a great one. <laughs> well, I think I think you know if I, if the pharmacist sees me walking up to the counter with three children in tow, and I'm going there for cold medicine, you know, here's something to help take the edge off of yourself too, because all my <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that might be illegal. I'm not sure, but it would be good experience. Or if, you know, as long as it's over the counter, I'm sure it's fine. Mm-hmm. Because it, it it gets into this. You know, what does the customer need that they're not expressing that we can provide, even if it's not central to our business function? Right. So the answer in the book is a lot of it is hiring the right people and training them well and telling them that you as an employee are are valued for figuring these things out and helping them with. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is also systems. So let's don't kid ourselves on that. It is, systems can be very anticipatory. I mean, if you go back to Amazon, this sounds like a joke, but it's true. They filed a patent to get stuff to before you even know you want to order it. <laughs> and that sounds like the most bizarre uh, patent. But what does it mean? Well, what it means, as I understand it, is they they pretty much know what you're going to order in the next few months, but they haven't been able to convince you to sign up for one of these auto refills because everyone wants agency, right? We don't really want to do that, but they know you're going to order it again. So what they do according to this patent or this patent application, I don't know if it's denied or not. They ship stuff to their nearest warehouse that they think, you know what I'm saying? And so, Mm. so that's kind of wild. That is okay. That that is actually that's brilliant because then they can get to you faster when you have your quote agency, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. So just just as a for instance, as a real life example, if I bought the book, ignore your customers and they'll go away. They know they got to get your other books to the fulfillment center. Mm. You know, oh, you know that probably is a real life example. Actually, yes, I, I I would think so. Right? I mean, it's it is this element of well, if people they can track if I bought you know. The, was a Tom Drury book, and pe- people yeah. who buy that first book buy other books. People who buy, you know, a Clancy book buy other books, or whoever, or your book buy other books of yours. So yes, that, I, that is probably part of it. Those things into those areas, and I also just riffing on this example a little bit. So that's that's through their system, right? They can track that in their system through ordering patterns. What about? The Customer Experience Professionals Association in Boston is X members large. Therefore, maybe we should have books that are related to customer experience in that warehouse. And oh, by the way, Mike is speaking, you know, next two months at a, an event in Boston. So we better get, you know, so I think that might be, I don't know if they have that capability of doing that cross-platform analysis. To well, if they do, experience. we're not the first people they're going to tell, but they probably do. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked. I don't think I'm smarter than the people they hired. 
if they if yeah. I am, please hire me. No, so, so this is no, no, no. You don't want to work at Amazon, trust me. But I mean, Amazon is one of these unusual companies where they are remarkable for their customers and. They have a mixed reputation with their employees. That is rare. In most companies, those really align. They are the best places to right. work for. And But, you know, that's not Amazon. Not yet, anyway. Hmm. Um, I just actually interviewed a woman who wrote the book On the Clock. Oh. Who worked at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, and she oh. talked about those experiences. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, all the executive complaining in the New York Times article – I have heard ex- executives who have good experiences there. And I, I literally live across – I mean I can wave across the Puget Sound to Amazon right now. I am. And I live on an <laughs> island. So life here would be miserable without Amazon. So I know the good side of Amazon. And there are executives who love to work there. And there are some who don't. But working in the warehouse, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll stay with interviewing. I think that sounds a little easier. <laughs> the funny thing about Amazon examples, and someone really tried to tell me on, on an interview the other day that, you know, well, Amazon does this and Amazon does that. Comparing yourself to Amazon is like comparing yourself to like the moonshot effort, right? Right. So you really have to be aware of it. I mean, you can't not have real time inventory anymore. If something's on your website, people expect that it's available that day. So Amazon really has changed the world. But on the other hand, because you can't be Amazon, and let's all repeat this together, we can't be Amazon. No one has managed to be Amazon. We've got to add something extra. So what's that extra going to be? In the case of my book, it's going to be assuming you have fewer customers in Amazon and paying even more attention to them. But Maybe your extra is something else. You know, maybe you're a really skilled hairdresser and it's a look that nobody else can provide. But you got to have something extra other than turning yourself into an unbeatable commodity, which is what Amazon is. Most commodities are beatable, but um, they're, as far as I can see on the horizon, you know, they're the exception. And I need to add to that as an educator, as a professor, that is a challenge to get across to our students sometimes that... They think that skills training, and there's been a whole movement about this, right? STEM fields. we got to be trained in skills. Yeah. we got to be trained in jobs. Well, you, and I, what I tell my students is you can't compete as a commoditized skill set in a global economy. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, especially with technological you know, advancements that are going on. And so this idea of adding that value, even as trite as it may sound to some, it is nevertheless true that how, it's how you are able to innovatively engage in those skills beyond the limits of what they're currently prescribed that's going to make you competitive, valuable, an asset in this new kind of experience economy. Exactly. I mean, the people I know who have been most successful, or at least have been, you know, successful, some of them are, you know, hyper, hyper focused on a technology kind of thing. But a lot of them are kind of funny generalists. Like that's, I mean, that's what I am. But there there are a lot of those people out there. And uh, I mean, Steve Jobs was one, you know, he didn't know tech half as well as he pretended to, right? And yet he could package it in kind of an amazing way. So there you go. I think generalists is, and I, you know, speaking for Adam, which I do every podcast, now, <laughs> yeah. for Adam, you know, happy to serve an anthropo- anthropologist <laughs> is a generalist of sorts. Uh-huh. Yeah, anyways, sociologist generally is a jack of all trades and master of none. 
And it's, it's, it's a frustration, at least in academia, is that we're, we're taught to be narrow in focus and very specific in our, our trade and craft and our research. But the world is a generalist world of integration. Mm-hmm. And for, for you, Micah, going from Berkeley School of Music, trying to be a rock star, to being a literal <laughs> CX rock star now. <laughs> that was a very good. That was a very good deep uh, deep cut there. I did also go to Brown, which is also known for uh, creating generalists. So yes, <laughs> fair. The generalists will take over the world. Wait and see. Revenge of the generalists. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Mm-hmm. And what is next for you, really quick? I mean, you plugged yeah. the book. We got that. You have your website, micasolomon.com. If you can't, uh, and it, Micah Solomon, if you're not good at spelling biblical names, uh, here's one that's a little easier, which is ignoreyourcustomers.com. I also have registered ignorethisbook.com, but, which I thought was hilarious, but my publisher thought that was just one step too far. So it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it was very Abby Hoffman, right? Yeah. So it's uh, ignoreyourcustomers.com. It works for the book anyway. But yeah, micasolomon.com. Fantastic. Adam, anything else before we, we, we let Micah go and wave to Amazon from across the sun? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say thanks so much for talking with us. I'm also going to say check out Micah on Twitter. You have a, a lovely and active Twitter uh, feed, which I always enjoy seeing. And so, oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And that's and just at, that's just at sign Micah Solomon. Yeah. So, and LinkedIn because Micah was actually giving away a lot of books through LinkedIn and bringing the wisdom to the masses, which is always appreciated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well. well, I'm I'm as much the I'm as much the masses, and Gary Gary brought some of that wisdom too. So, thank you, Gary. Always happy to oblige. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been total fun. Thank you again. Great. Thanks. thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. We really do want to thank Micah for visiting the Experience by Design Studios and talking about his new book, Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away. And you should remember the title of that book because we mentioned it many times. And I've read it. It's a really great book. You should check it out. He has very, very specific advice that you can follow as a playbook, as well as general reminders on how to construct your customer and employee experience philosophy. You can get that book wherever you get books, as well as Micah's other books. He's written a few, so check them all out. Make sure you visit MicahSolomon.com as well to interact with Micah directly and check out all of his other work and writing and thoughts. And Micah is one of those guys that gives you his phone number, and if you contact him directly, he will respond directly. Also check him out on LinkedIn for other great content. I will say that after watching Micah as a keynote speaker, he's a very entertaining and warm person, very genuine, and with a lot of great content on how to make your culture customer and employee centric. You should definitely invite him to your next corporate event. You won't regret it. And thanks everyone for listening. If you have any ideas for future episodes or feedback on past episodes, you can go to feedback at experiencebydesign.com or that's experiencexdesign.com because someone else has the other URL to provide us with your thoughts. And you can go to experiencexdesign.com to subscribe to our feed, as well as to check out our past episodes. We're starting to develop a pretty good library there, and we have a lot of interesting content from across very different experience design areas. So check them all out, stimulate your experience design brain, and think innovatively from across a lot of different domains. Please consider donating through our glow.fm link to help us fund the podcast that we're bringing to you right now. Adam and I are looking at some members-only content for glow.fm subscribers, so be sure to stay tuned for what we come up with there. 
And finally, make sure you don't ignore your customers or your employees. You'll regret it because they will go away. On the other hand, if you want to ignore your children or other family members, well, that's totally up to you. Take care, everyone. Bye.